0: Good morning, thank you for tuning in to this week's DevSecOps Coffee Chat. I'm Kirsten Patton, the Working Group Manager at ATARC. The purpose of this series is to provide a platform that invites change agents to
1: share their journey of digital transformation and expand upon their passion and
0: purpose. We want this audience to learn more about digital and IT transformation with evolving technology and a focus on DevOps. The speakers we invite on are effectively improving mission enablement and user experience. These are leaders in the federal space that inspire, educate and promote innovation and collaboration. Grab your coffee and get ready to hear this Tuesday's inspiring story. I'm now gonna hand it over to the host of this series, Jennifer Kenny Smith. Good morning, good afternoon. This is Jennifer Kenny Smith. I'm the area sales manager for GitLab of civilian sales and with my friends from HARC. I'm super excited about this morning's podcast in honor of Women's History Month. I have the incredible, the amazing Robin Reese, who is a senior advisor of workforce trends and innovation and innovative workforce planning process at the U.S. Department of Interior. Good morning, Robin. How are you?
1: Good morning. Thank you so much for inviting me to share with your audience, Jennifer. Um, I want to start by saying just a little bit about myself and my background and, and why I'm a why I'm a voice that anybody listens to right in this day and age so I've been at the department for about two years as a senior advisor in the office of Human capital and my background is in information technology management in IT governance and strategy and federal budgeting and contract administration and in communications and basically everything but human resources. Um, so one one might find themselves asking, why is Robin working on human capital transformation at the Department of the Interior? And I'll back up in a little bit and tell you about, about my growth path uh, throughout my career, but I will say that I came to DOI with a big vision and a clear goal that that I was able and fortunate to elaborate on with a former mentor of mine at the National Science Foundation, Miss Dorothy Aronson, who's the Chief Information Officer. And we had a notion that when we talk about digital transformations, that there's a culture of scarcity that surrounds that kind of dialogue. Meaning scarcity of work. If the computers come in and take my work, I'll have less to do and then you won't need me. And I think that that's um, a, a falsehood when we talk about information technology. And rather, Dorothy and I felt very strongly that technology is an enabler. It could be a level a playing field for the workforce writ large if we leverage it Uh, with the troves of data we have to simply enable us to continue to be employable and with that we needed to recognize that we were needing to operate in a culture where the workforce can constantly learn continuously reskill and redeploy and that we could allow them mechanisms to support a view into the future needs of an organization, a view into their strengths and interests, and then a clear path into how to continue to prepare themselves to meet the missions of the future. And so when I came to the Department of Interior, I was really fortunate to be supported by like-minded leadership who embraced my passion for technology as an enabler of a highly resilient federal workforce. And through our efforts to make the work and workforce data technology enabled, we are very clear that this is as much about workplace and workforce culture transformation as our efforts are about data transparency in the digital age with respect to human capital data. So let me back up and just say a few things about myself. Why do I care so deeply about this? One, I was the teenager in high school who on the career shadowing day all those school counselors said, what do you want to be when you grow up? We'll send you to shadow somebody in the professional community. And I said, I'd like to be an interior designer. And they sent me to the local furniture sales room, showroom floor, and I dusted furniture for the day. Wow. And I decided that day that I was not going to be an interior designer. Right. I that bet. furniture I hated to people. <laughs> <laughs> um, but But if you think about it, their view, my counselors in my small town in Florida, their view of what constituted interior design was what they knew in the community surrounding them. Okay. They knew that people sold furniture, but they didn't think about the local architectural firm right. that have set me to do building design. Um, they didn't think about things outside of their community because Again, this is, you know, the beginning of the information age and the internet and we're still limited by what we know around us, right? So now I put myself in the position as a, as a mother, right? And I have kids who are imagining what they wanna do in the future. And their imagination is not limited to the extent mine was. Mm-hmm. And the imagination of, of um, what they can be when they grow up, I think will be ever evolving. Yeah. We won't pick one thing and stick with it. That's just not the way the world is anymore. Um, And when I went to school, I thought, well, I'm not going to be an interior designer, but I'm going to do something that I know I'm good at. So I'll go to school for communications and public relations. And then I moved to D.C. and I started working immediately as um, program control and program management support for information technology contracts for the federal government, (laughs) doing budget and resource management and strategy and planning and all these things that, you would say, why a communications person? Um, And and the thing is that communication is something that is uniquely human to me. I'm good at that. I'm good at a lot of other things. But Mm -hmm. I wrap that skill around the work that I've done throughout my career. And so I've seen the vendor side of information technology and information technology helped us contracts for the government. I've written those proposals. I've lived those lives. I've been part of those teams of people that are starting from tier one help desk all the way through systems integration and engineers. I then transitioned to the federal government at the National Science Foundation where I did uh, capital planning and investment control. I managed the agency's central IT budget. I uh, morphed that role into also taking on information technology governance with the executive uh, committees and the leadership across the research groups of the department, communicating to them about the value of information technology to carry out their very critical research work. Um, And and we uh, were able then to start to talk strategically about IT instead of tactically about how to keep things alive, right? Um, And so I grew up in a very supportive space and culture that rewarded continuous learning at the National Science Foundation. And years ago, when the former administration's uh, agenda came out and they said, hey, let's focus on the workforce for the 21st century, the entire dialogue was around reskilling and redeploying because computers were going to take our jobs away, and performance management because we're not doing good work, and recruiting because we're not recruiting as well as the private sector and we're very competitive. And I'm, I may have been the only one in the room that day at GSA talking about the PMA um, who was not a human capital professional. And I said, I think one of the critical pieces to acknowledge here when we're talking about reskilling and redeploying is that technology is an enabler. It's not necessarily just a, a cause for a dystopian future that puts people out of work but if we can leverage it to make information transparent to the employee population so that they can be ready to meet the missions instead of being victims to technology taking their jobs, then we can get into a culture of continuous reskilling and redeploying. And that began, uh, which is what is now a passion project of mine which is making sure that when my kids are of the age to be in the workforce, that they are continuously employable and they are not of the mind that once they graduate college, they're done learning. Um, And so I, I hope that gives people a little bit of insight into why I enter this dialogue and why I feel so strongly about enabling what I call an ever ready workforce which also enables organizations to continue to meet the mission as the world around them evolves and changes.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I what's interesting is the evolution of your career um, hasn't been a stop and pivot. You've been slowly pivoting and journeying through all these different opportunities to build your skill set, to add your to be impactful um, with the purpose of helping and encouraging this change, where I think so many people resist that. So kudos to you for that. What gave you that confidence to really kind of be open to and maybe even curiosity with the confidence to to try these new roles, these new places to make impacts?
1: That's a really good question, Jennifer. I think there are a few pieces of that. One is just that um, when I feel convicted about a particular thing, I have conviction about the work that I'm doing, the confidence comes naturally. You know it's the right thing to do, you need to make it happen. The other part of that is I know a lot about myself. <laughs> through, through my years of, of um, federal employment, I've been able to take advantage of a lot of leadership development training, which personally I think is a foundational skill set that we all need to have across the workforce. We lead from all levels. And the more we know about ourselves, the more effective we can be in teams and in organizations, whether or not we officially hold supervisory roles or, or, or leadership titles. Um, and so the more I know about myself, the more I know about the strengths that I have, and, the, and then I go and I learn about the areas that are gonna make the biggest impact to people's lives so that they can continue to be successful, um, I'm, I like to make people successful, right? I know this about myself. So I just pivot where the need is and I go and I help people cross the finish line. Um, and so I suppose part of the answer to that question is it just comes naturally to me. And the other part of that question is I spent over a decade learning about myself so that I can be confident and have conviction about the things that I'm doing and really go out and influence on behalf of a broader uh, swath of the workforce um, who, who may not know as much in order to do the in- influencing at that level.
0: Yeah, a couple of things you um, touched on that I think are super important is the awareness. Self-awareness is so important, um, especially as we're moving into a leadership role and to be able to make a broader impact we need to be aware of what we are good at and where our blind spots are, um, and also investing in yourself and continuing and to have that appetite to grow with the leadership training and the evolution of you. Mm-hmm. So super important for those that are listening, of curious, like how did you get there and, and they're looking to maybe make the next step in their career?
1: Yeah, I wanna back up and give a quick example about this. I am the daughter of a Navy SEAL. We do everything perfect. Okay. I am the uh, the youngest of of three children with two older brothers, um, and so it's a very competitive house. Right when I graduated college and I got my first job and I worked in the private sector, we didn't deliver anything to a client until it was the perfect product. We did not co-create. We did not collaborate. We were the experts. We delivered, and so there was a there was a culture there in that environment of. Um, being the best, being the all star, right? And it was when I got to the federal service that I started working predominantly with women instead of men, and I was out of my comfort zone yeah. because I grew up in a male-dominated household, and I knew how to work in that environment, which was what the private sector environment felt like for me. It was like being at home, right? Yeah. So I came to the uh, to an organization where the leadership and the colleagues around me were almost entirely women. And I had to relearn how to be confident and have conviction around something that I wanted to do in a way that also wasn't off-putting yeah. um, to the people around me. And fortunately, those women leaders that I worked with were also incredibly adept at making it um, the workplace a safe place where we could admit to not knowing all the answers. we not have to strive for perfection the first time around. And that's probably has a lot to do with just simply being in the information technology field to begin with. So much of it is um, invention moving forward that you just can't be perfect in that situation. You have to accept small mistakes and keep moving forward and learning. And so I think that that coupled with all of the self-awareness training that I've had over the years Really allowed me to get comfortable with um, my with what my former mentor, Miss Dorothy Anderson, would tell me. She would say, "It's okay to get a B. If you're always trying to get an A plus today,
0: you're behind tomorrow." Oh, and from the for the daughter of a Navy SEAL to hear that, I, I was like, like,
1: "Oh no, I don't get B's." <laughs> what is
0: a B anyway? <laughs> <laughs>
1: Um, but but it and it and it took me a few years to sort of get comfortable with that. I had to practice not being perfect. I had to practice co-creating and collaborating, um, and I had to practice being okay with not knowing the answer. Um, and fortunately, I got to practice under leadership that supported that kind of stuff. That's not everybody's situation, but I think it can be, and it should be because things change too fast these days. We don't know the answer.
0: Yeah, um, rapid speed, especially. Yeah, I agree. And it's so profound to hear in a female culture. And I'm going to say it because it's Women's History Month and we have a little more uh, curiosity about that. The women in leadership, especially in technology, is on the decline. And that needs to change because we're going to miss a huge part of innovation if women don't continue to step in and step up. Um, And I'm saying that to the people listening that may have daughters that may have sons that have friends that are girls. Um, t- together we can do this, um, but that the decline is concerning to me. I have a daughter. I don't, uh, she may go into tech. Um, she likes to design with animation. So that would be fantastic. So she can continue that path. But um, these are super brilliant ideas and nuggets that you're sharing. I wanna move into, The umbrella of digital transformation and we met on the HARC working group and we're kind of vetting ideas and this moved into of that huge umbrella there's so many pieces and components and so much of it is focused on the technology and the last few podcasts I've had I've been asking, it was the what's the how do you make the impact to the culture to support it but also to get to support the mission seems like the mission is always the priority right um so is it the tech or the culture or somewhere in the middle and there's been some some shared thoughts on definitely leaning towards you impact the culture support the culture tech comes second some are more on the the thought side of technology will shift faster than the culture and the culture will get in line or follow up or not and when you and i talked to this was the thought of that repurposing of people Um, or uh, Bill James had shared about training and doing a gap analysis of where they are, what their skill set is, and then training and helping them evolve into the new skill set. And you kind of stopped me in my tracks and, and shared how to humanize this and why the scarcity mindset is the bigger threat here. And if we would shift that and empower the culture, with the tools and it's a harmony. It's a harmonious way to approach this, that it is all one. It's not one versus the other. It shouldn't be this threat. And it's definitely coming from that scarcity mindset. And I don't know if it's ever been done before. So guys, can you walk us through that journey? Like, you're, This is your brain cloud, and I'm so excited to hear more.
1: Yeah, thank you. Um, you know, I I am of the mind that I have no original ideas, but I listen to a lot of people and I do a lot of reflection. And I can turn that back around into something that maybe can make sense to us. So um, when I think about technology and culture and which one comes first, or do they move in parallel? Um, I think that what I've seen is we've gone through the space during, during just the lifetime of my short career so far, We've gone through the space of leveraging technology to make us more efficient in work. We've automated business processes and workflows. We're very good at knowing the 10 steps to get to the end and making that happen faster with technology, right? Um, again, that assumes that the process doesn't change because the world around us isn't changing that fast, right? So we've gone through that that time period and that time period is threatening for people because the faster that technology could do it, the less we needed the humans to do it. And then what do I do now? Right? So that's a very real experience that a lot of people in the workforce had, right? Then I was able to watch The information technology field on the software development side really turn into this collaboration model away from the software development lifecycle and waterfall towards the Agile approach to requirements development to understanding the big picture and breaking it down into pieces and delivering a piece at a time. Well, we can't do that without the input from the people who do the work. Right. So, as we're coordinating in the information technology field with the people who do the work, so that we can deliver value, they're part of the change. So now it's not technology making the people change, right? Um, it's that we're working together to make the technology make us more effective rather than more efficient. Right. It has always been my view, and. I'm willing to bet 90% of the federal workforce feel this way. They have a 12 inch plate with an 18 inch pizza flopping mm-hmm. over the edges. They have too much work to do. And we're constantly being asked to do more with less. And I personally believe we do different with less, right? Mm-hmm. And part of doing different is not that we just say, no, we're not gonna do that work. It's that we find ways to be more effective um, As humans by augmenting our capacity with technology. So when we think about it through that space of technology really enabling us to deliver better services to deliver more services to be more effective as employees. It's not about technology taking my job away. It's about technology enabling me to deliver to all the people who need the public services that I can't get to because I'm only one person or I'm only a group of 10 or I'm only this size organization. And so if we think about technology as an enabler, then I think we shift that culture of scarcity to a culture of abundance where there's more than enough work, right? Mm -hmm. There's too much. And we can make other people effective in our workspaces if we could have technology Augment the parts that need a little bit of a jump start in the hands of people that can take it the rest of the way. I mean, we might actually move into a space where we make more people employable by leveraging technology to get things started and then handing it off.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, and so, when I think about transformation, I think you can't do one without the other. In fact, you can't do technology implementation without people or data. And if they don't all move at the same time, it's not happening.
0: Right.
1: You're gonna to get to the end, you'll deliver something that either the people won't work or you'll deliver something that you don't have the data ready for. So then what happens? Legacy IT. Yes. Right? Yeah. So we have to be thinking with the end in mind, with the big picture in mind. And if everybody gets behind the vision in the big picture and then moves in, in um, increments, in all three levels, data, technology, and people, then we're moving together um, the whole way forward. And as the big picture changes, adjust in the future, then we adjust with it. That's just the world today. That's just the pace of change. Yeah.
0: I want to highlight to um, an example I shared on one of the most one of the recent podcasts that I hear a lot and i've always been in the vendor space i've always been with a technology company. And the thought and I typically work with the CIO so or deputy directors CTOs uh, the decision makers of the technology and have the budget authority, so they will then um, have us work with the technology teams. Um, and if you're working with a leader a visionary strategist typically there's some harmony some synergy between what is being discussed and what the technology team that culture can adapt to and support Um, sometimes though there is a an agency that is such a deep-seated so cios 10 levels above even a branch chief branch chief's making the decision on the tech or vice versa, you have a CIO that has a new technology they're passionate about, they make that decision and then almost force it down. So there's a lot of ways that leadership makes decisions on the direction they're going with technology. Um, recently a discussion was a customer, a potential prospect customer is interested in replacing their tool chain with our product with GitLab. And the feedback was my it's a big, that's a big lift and shift. That's a big mm-hmm. undertaking. He it's um, It's going to be a lot of work, and the idea is it's being made at the top, but the developers who are using other tools and are trained in other tools, my prediction is they're going to be concerned, frustrated, irritated, overwhelmed. They weren't a part of that decision, and that's the, to your point, that's the legacy style of leadership with tech versus culture. So maybe the tech is the right tool for them, for the budget, for the mission, for the consolidation of tools. There's a lot of reasons why they would decide something like that, but the culture will struggle and maybe even suffer and therefore delay the up, the yeah. shift, the going live, delay the folks that are there that maybe are great employees, a part mm-hmm. of the current culture, they may leave because they feel like their voice wasn't heard or they weren't a part of this process. So um, can you speak to what would be a... A holistic way to approach that from decision makers that have the funding authority and are interested in being a part of that technology evaluation, as well as then the technology teams who are also very much passionate about honing on on their skills, continuing to have job security and still wanting to also make an impact. I think that we underestimate how much the whole culture wants to show up to do good work. Yes.
1: Yes, that is, there's, this is a very layered conversation, gonna try to um, peel away at some of the layers here. First, I'll say that I've been part of both, both ripping the band-aid and implementing a technology solution because we just have to do it and agilely um, uh, evolving and getting input from the workforce and making that change together. And as a practical person, I would say that I understand that there's a time and a space for you know just accepting that leaders have to make a decision and you have to roll with it and then there's a time there's a time where you can be more thoughtful and deliberate the key is transparency and communication the key is in saying i know this isn't ideal and we didn't get a lot of your input and and normally we would under these circumstances this thing we're doing is such a well defined process and this resource that supports it is such a well-defined thing um, that we had to make a decision and move. We will give you the space to get a B while you're learning this new new tool. So we can get back up to speed. And I think a lot of the hesitancy with change is that we're still expected to deliver the A plus while we're going through the change. And that we don't, we're not given the space to learn the new thing. Right. Now that differs depending on where you sit in the information technology field. The way that I've seen it is we're always getting ready for the next version. Right. Um, An entire tool set wholesale change. That's maybe a little bit different, but I are, I think we're already in the um, some form of continuous learning mindset. Right. That's, it's a little bit easier to overcome in that space, but in the human capital space, when we're changing the tools that our practitioners are using in order to carry out their work, and their work is, again, an 18-inch pizza pie on a 12-inch plate, it is incredibly stressful, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And and like I said, I've been involved in some of those, sort of, we just have to do this implementation because it doesn't get better with age, and, and we have to do it, and sometimes, that technology change is the forcing function. um, And we just have to be really supportive of our people. Um, On the other hand, I think that there's plenty of decision-making that just gets done without including people, because that's the fast, easy way to do it. And we don't think about the people on the other end (laughs) or the the impacts to the work. And I've been fortunate to be part of really collaborative governance structures where we do uh, package ideas, get input from the community, vote on what's the back, best path forward, um, and, then, and then do our best to um, put some priorities a little bit on the back burner while we pull others to the front and make those very deliberate trade-offs, right? Because you don't do anything without making a trade. You just have to be clear on what the trade is. Um, and, and at the Department of Interior, I would say that I, I watch a lot of this very collaborative, you know, vote decision-making happen um, with respect to how we leverage technology to do our work. But I can also see that as a large federated organization, you know, where every bureau gets their own, um, their own funding, their own resources, that decisions are just made and not everybody is going to know about it, right? I say all of this to say that there's an element that we need to own as employees where we trust and accept our leadership's decisions, right? And then there's an element that leaders need to own and organizations need to own about respecting our workforce and allowing them their transitions. It is not healthy to just rip the bandaid off and pretend like nothing happened. Um, But if if we say, we know we're forcing this on you We know it's gonna be difficult for you. Let's help you through that change. It's a different dialogue and it creates a different space to be um, accepting of changes.
0: Yeah. So I'm gonna pull on the thread of humanizing the culture and say a team has been instructed that new change, new tech is coming in. And you and I vibed on my thought was and it was an evolving thought from the last few working groups we had and if anyone's listening and you're not a part of the working groups of they talk, they are incredible lots of great thought leadership and. inspirational ideas start to just percolate on the fly it's you don't have to wait to read somebody's book or read a blueprint it's happening live so big shout out to the working groups that. We started talking through how to give training, how to give this support. And I'm thinking maybe it's a quarterly training, maybe it's a once a year, a big train-a-thon. And you jumped in and, and identified and, and coached me on how legacy that thought is, which is so so brilliant. And I appreciate you so much for helping me level up and to give me a different idea, different perspective of from vendors, from industry, what we can offer and then what the government might be able to consume. Um, and even the SIs too, because they're very, very much a part Part of the government's mission focus too um so can you tell me your thoughts on how to consume your own training on the fly and what that looks like yeah this um i, I didn't mean to school you on that but <laughs> well, welcomed i welcome it you level me up and i love it
1: i i my view of training is that um training and learning is just part of our lives if we put ourselves at home and i'm a mom i have two boys, my nine-year-old is likely gonna be an engineer of some sort someday. Um, When he gets an idea, I have to learn how to teach him about it, right? And so I do that, I Google it, I watch a YouTube video. We do these things at home where when the dishwasher breaks we look it up and figure out how to fix it before we call the repairman. But when we get to work and we run into a problem with maybe leveraging new technology to help us do our work. Um, We default to traditional boot camps and training courses. We ask for a week away from the office and 40 hours of of funding for training so that we can go learn something completely new. And what I saw happen at the uh, beginning of the pandemic, what I saw happen at the beginning of the pandemic um, like I said, I have young boys.
0: Yes, and you don't miss a beat. So if you're not watching this live, Robin probably had somebody pop in her office, which happens to me too. And I just want to give a shout out to all the moms and the parents out there that don't miss a beat with the work, why life is happening with little ones.
1: Yeah, I'll tell you that it's not uncommon for the little ones to be laying under my desk. Um, and I did have to teach them PowerPoint at the beginning of the school year in virtual training. So now they're they're adept at at. Um, at the office tool suite. Uh, but I will say that when I, when I entered into the pandemic and I was connecting with some of my friends and colleagues in other offices around the department, um, and many of them supervisors, they were lamenting the fact that, you know, some of their uh, support personnel you know, weren't familiar with the tools uh, that they could use electronically to, for example, redact documents and things like that. Because in the office, you just take a sharpie to a piece of paper and you go scan it in. And um, and my colleague, my friend at the time, said, "You know, I'm just doing it myself because I don't have time to send them to a boot camp. I just I just can't even think about that right now. We have so much work to do." And I said have you thought about just you like Googling and finding a YouTube two minute video on how to redact documents using Adobe Acrobat and sending the link to your employee so that you don't have to do this anymore? And she's like, oh, right? Yeah. So we don't, we don't think that way at work. We think way at home, but at work, um, the, the resourcefulness sort of, sorts of it falls away. Right. Um, Because there's a way that we do training. There's a way that we do learning. But if we just step outside of that culture of learning and training that we've um, maybe grown up in or experienced throughout our careers and say, how might I respect personal learning? How might I respect other ways of of learning through reading or um, affiliation with professional associations or Uh, looking up training in in more micro, small packages, then maybe we can start to rely less on training budgets and more on just the very real evolutionary ways of learning every day, all day long. The culture there that... um, one of the things that Dorothy Ernson said as the CIO at NSF was, wouldn't it be great if two hours of every day was spent training for tomorrow?
0: Yes, wouldn't it?
1: Wouldn't it be great? And I think that as leaders and as supervisors, we are um, incentivized to, to make sure that our employees are fully engaged. They have no time left for anything else. And that might then come at the expense of being prepared to meet the mission mm-hmm. a months from now. And so transitioning that mindset to, I'm, studies have been done on this. Most employees aren't really fully engaged 100% of the time at work, right? But what if we leveraged that other 10% of, of time where there, there may be transitioning between work tasks to say, okay, while you're transitioning, read this article, learn this thing new. right? Um, and if we got used to that, uh, then perhaps the stigma about spending time on the job learning would go away.
0: Right. And that would marry to the idea of not being threatened by new technology or having to take the time to get new certifications or completely lift and shift what the career is currently. Um, I want to close with the thought too. You mentioned your kids and how they inspire you to how you look at the humanizing of the culture and their transition, their trajectory and their careers. Um, can you read you and I talked before, can you share with the story about your mom's career and at her age, was she done evolving in her work, in her impact, in her um, showing up? I, th- I think
1: that's a great question. The answer is she's never done. She's still not done. Uh, but, but I do think that the world was different for her than it is for me today. And so a lot of what I grew up expecting the workplace and the workforce to be like is not what it ended up being like for me. So um, my mother is a Puerto Rican native. She moved to the States when she was 13. And um, she graduated high school when she was 16, and she went to New York and started selling Cuban coffee makers. (laughs) That was her first job. Um, But shortly after that, she entered into the employee relations field and the human capital discipline or human resources discipline. And if I were to look at her resume today and watch the trajectory of her career, it was very much the career ladder. Yeah. I'm moving from employee resources to this other area, to this other area. And then I'm ending my career as an HR director in state and local governments, right? She just retired just a few weeks ago. Um, fortunate for me, I now have some help with those wonderful little children. <laughs> but, but the the thing is that she never stopped learning. She never stopped growing, but she also had a very clear path, right? Uh, there, was, there was a place where she, Where she was able to continue growing and she knew where she could go next, right? Um, When I play that forward into my expectations of coming into the workplace, right, um, I was taught that if you moved around too much, you weren't going to be a desirable candidate, right? You weren't loyal to your company. Um, And when I think about that Loyalty to the company, I think, you know, I want to be loyal to them. I also want to be loyal to myself and continue growing. And so we, we now have to make those decisions, those trades. And it's not um, uncommon now for there to be more mobility in the workforce. And somebody like my mother might look at that and be like, oh, that's bad. Don't do that. Right. Um, But it's not. Anymore. So, if we if we look at the culture of organizations and we look at the um, the way that we view technology, my personal opinion is that we're still living the culture and values of the industrial age, where a person could get through their entire career operating one way, and just wait for the next generation to change that process and operate another way, and. In in that construct, it's very easy to see how um, we're focused on efficiency, right? There is a process, we do it this way, we're gonna carry it out repeatedly until I retire. (laughs) Um, And as we evolve and as technology continues to advance and augment the way that we work and change the way that we carry out our work, I think that we are shifting towards a culture of effectiveness where rather than simply being efficient in carrying out the processes, we're always tinkering. Yeah. And when we we tinker and we change the way that we do things, we start to enter a culture of, of uh, collaboration and learning that our, our leaders need to support with dialogue, um, to acknowledge that that has changed in the workplace, and that it's okay. It's, you know, we're not going to be um, looked down upon if we want to be mobile within organizations and continue support the missions or even continue to support public service across federal agencies, um, as long as we're still committed as public servants. Yeah. Um, and so when I look at my career, I think that I've taken the things that I've that I think I'm good at or that I know I'm good at and I've deployed those strengths in many different areas mm-hmm. in order to keep the ball moving forward versus having a career ladder, ladder. I'm more of a career lattice. I've moved around through many different functions, but I'm very good at the core things that are me, yeah. right? And, and when we look to the future, when I look to the future for my children, change is going to be amplified for them. They're going to wake up in the morning and they're going to check out what projects they're assigned to. In addition to the ones they had yesterday, they're going to just expect that change. Um, And they will be used to working with diverse and and collaborative teams in in virtual settings because they're doing it today for school. (laughs) Um, And I think that will make us, that it's simply going to propel this culture of, of effectiveness and enablement in our future generations. And I think there's a lot of value in that and we can look on that fondly and welcome it instead of pushing it away. If we continue to look at it as a threat and ignore it, it will happen anyway. Change will happen anyway. We either get to be part of it and influence it Or we get to sit back and let it happen to us and I am committed to influencing it for the benefit of the workforce that carries out the important mission so that we all can be employable for as long as we like to be should we choose to continue learning and developing towards that target and that goes for people um, who are in the younger generations today and those who maybe um, have been in their jobs for 20 years but don't really need to retirement when they're retirement eligible Right. Um, people are working a lot longer than they have in the past, and we need to acknowledge that people are valuable at all the stages of their life. Yes. If, if we could simply expose the need for the work that we need to be done through a lens that they can target, then we could really close the gaps in the uh, the workforce and skill set gaps that we think we have if we look at it a little bit differently.
0: Yeah. So much knowledge and so many great nuggets to share. Um, I love your transparency and communication um, direction, and I love the more effective versus more efficient and the culture of abundance, all those thoughts there. Thank you so much for everything that you've shared. Is there anything else you want to share, anything inspiring or future thoughts or any shout outs to anyone who's inspired or helped you along your career?
1: My goodness, Um, all of you who have helped me along my career know who you are and you know I respect you greatly and still keep in touch with you. I'll say that I was um, recently unpacking things from my mother's office when she retired and there a paperweight came out of the box and it said every job is a self portrait of the person who did it autograph your work with excellence and this paperweight used to sit on my dad's desk when I was a little girl and it was the thing that drove me to that perfection, right, Mm, everywhere. And then I reflected and I thought, but what if my job is to enable others, to grow others, to coach and mentor others? What does perfection look like, right? Does perfection look like the hammer and the nail or does perfection look like a safe space for people to learn and grow and to mature with their organizations? So I have a different view or mental model of what that quote means to me now than it did maybe when I was early career. So again, it's every job is a self-portrait of the person who did it. Autograph your work with excellence.
0: Amazing, I love it. And the evolution of you, you're doing amazing things and I can't wait to hear about and see what you do next. Thank you so much for being on with me. I've enjoyed this thoroughly. You inspire me. I'm so excited to work with you.
1: Thank you so much. I appreciate having the time to talk with you and all your listeners.
0: Thank you. Big shout out to ATARC too for hosting this event. Thank you so much.